0: Hello, SBR Podcast community. This is your host, Brian McDonough, and today's show is a really good one. But before I get started, as always, I want to take a moment to welcome any new listeners to the show. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the premise of the SBR Podcast is to interview personalities in the sports business industry. With each interview, my goal is to dive into compelling topics and pick the brains of those individuals who are leaders in the sports business world. Today, we are taking a different approach. The past two episodes, I've brought you the Director of Group Sales for the Los Angeles Clippers and the Director of Sales for the Philadelphia Phillies. Well, this week, we're going to go behind the scenes. For today's episode, we're going to be speaking to an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. John Kelly. Dr. Kelly is an orthopedic surgeon and the Director of Shoulder Sports at Penn Medicine. He is also a professor of clinical orthopedic surgery at the Perelman School of Medicine and a solid stand-up comedian. Dr. Kelly, how are you? I'm
1: doing great. Thanks, Brian.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's really good to have you on. And I just kind of want to hear about your background and what your role is, what you do day to day, if you don't mind.
1: Well, I'm a lucky guy, Brian. I just spend my whole day helping people. Uh, I uh, am principally a sports medicine uh, physician and surgeon, uh, with my particular interest of the shoulder. Um, I see people with various uh, afflictions of the musculoskeletal system, you know, fractures, arthritis, sprains, uh, instability, rotator cuff tears. I do hip arthroscopy. And unlike some of my colleagues who do really good work, I, I focus on trying to save joints rather than replace them. That's okay. the exciting thing.
0: So when it comes to saving or replacing the joint, what is it that you exactly mean by that? Obviously, you have to diagnose the joint, but at that point in time, when you make that decision, what are you looking for? What makes you save it versus replace it?
1: Well, you know, most important thing is the history. You have to listen to the
0: patient. Okay.
1: The great William Oster said, listen to the patient and he or she will tell you what the disease is. You know, in this day and age of hurried, uh, techno-fix medicine, MRI, bone scan, uh, MRI scan, CAT scan... Yeah, the, the art of medicine can't be lost. Just sit down and listen to the patient. They'll tell you usually what's going on. And then also um, the physical examination is very important to make my decisions, you know, to do surgery or not really on my exam findings. Sure. So MRIs are great. All these tests are great, but I had a great mentor. He says, you know, we forgot about the man scan. How about examining the patient? So that's very, very important. And people. When they go to the, to a doctor, they they want to be touched. They want to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. examined. Yeah, I'll pr- I'll call it, okay, touched appropriately. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that leads me to my next question. Then you have a background in comedy. You know, you're you're a comedian. Yes. And day to day as a doctor, how does that help you communicate with your patients?
1: Well, it just um, breaks the ice, and you know, humor has to be appropriate. You know, you don't make fun of people's disorders or illness or but I do think that uh, I remember having been raised in the Catholic tradition, a priest once told me that humor is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I forgot that. And if you can use it to make someone's day brighter, like, you know, uh, someone may come to me and they're 50 years old and they say, um, you yeah, know, I hurt my shoulder two years ago. I so, oh, excuse me, like, while you're still in college, They just, like just little things like that. Edifying, edifying humor, positive humor, to make light of some good things about their life is always good. Sure. It works. So it helps. One of the things we teach, we teach communication skills to our residents. And one of the things you want to do first for the patient is engage. You engage them. So you can use a little lighthearted joke. And I'll make fun of the fact that I'm often late. And I'll say that that I'm usually late. That in fact, my my uh, ancestors came to this country on the um, June flower. Get it, Brian? <laughs> instead of the Mayflower, the June flower.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I'll be
1: know. late for my own viewing. How about that one?
0: <laughs> yeah, so that so a lot of it is you know a question I had for you, and we kind of discussed this was the profiles profiles that lead to a positive outcome versus a poor outcome, yes yeah. surgery, and do you think a lot of you know leading to a positive outcome it's it's setting that mindset? Do you believe in the mindset being positive prior to surgery, and maybe yes, that absolutely so-
1: well there's literature on this, and i and my career has borne this out probably the single most important determinative outcome is belief. Mm-hmm. Belief. Belief by the patient in the caregiver, number one, and number two, closely behind that in the treatment. And there's no there's no buy-in. And if the patients don't believe they're going to do well, they're not going to do well. You know, I uh, was involved, I was blessed to be involved with a, um, uh, still involved with a multi-center shoulder study group. And we looked at rotator cuff tears that uh, treated non-operatively with physical therapy. Okay, And the biggest predictor of outcome, Brian, was not terror size, was not frequency, intensity of therapy, was belief in the treatment. If they didn't believe the therapy is going to help, they didn't get better. If they did believe, they did get better. So in order for them to believe in the care and the caretaker, you have to establish a rapport. So that's why it's so important. Uh, the, the old axiom, um, people don't care how much you know, until you know until they know how much you care. That's so true. So true.
0: Yeah, and that leads me into a different question, right? This is a a sports business, really, a podcast. And oftentimes, like when a player gets injured, there's a specific period where the player gets diagnosed. And then there seems to be another period where, whether it be the team doctor or management comes out and they say, we're still uh, taking a look, We're, we're still evaluating. What's the hesitation there? You know, at the end of the day, there's huge financial implications. I completely understand that, but from a medical perspective, is there is there a benefit to the hesitation, or is that more or less just management uh, for whatever reason, maybe slowing things up? What are your thoughts?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of factors. I've had you know the privilege of taking care of uh, several pro athletes over the years, and a lot of it's aging driven. They want to get the, uh, shop around, and get the best treatment, which is obviously reasonable. Um, And then, you know, um, there's lots of inherent pressures by the stakeholders. Like, well, you know, can we get them to play sooner? That's why I, uh, you know, uh, I believe that the right thing to do is always cost effective. You know, when you short change treatment and you think you're you're helping your player get back to that season sooner, if you think long term, it's not cost effective. You know, doing the right thing at the right time, the right reason is always the mantra we should all do. And it may not be, cost-effective for that season, but long-term it is. So I think the hesitancy is the convergence of all these factors, you know, pro and con for getting the player back. And secondly, you know, the player has millions and millions and millions at stake. So they take time in shopping around. And again, it's agent driven, so agent will maybe shop them around to different doctors um, and uh, make an informed decision. You know, it's a career at stake. So if they wait a few weeks, that's okay. It's the rest of their life.
0: Sure. And, you know, you said you've worked with a lot of professional athletes. Um, Is there any particular sport that you see the most trauma?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's football. Football is not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some high energy injuries, both of the knee, shoulder, a lot of concussions. Um, But, you know, people don't understand soccer is a contact sport. Lots of relatively high energy injury. Um, You know, I've seen some pretty bad knee injuries with baseball. I know it was one of your uh, big sports, Brian. Yeah. Um, Basketball is brutal on the knees. It Depends on how you quantify uh, injury prevalence, but in terms of the most high energy dislocated knees, vascular injury, nerve injury, it's football.
0: And you know, you're talking about different age groups there, right? Is there a benefit to adolescents, you know, playing multiple sports? Um, to refrain from injury if you, if you specialize on a sport too soon do you think that can oftentimes down the road increase the risk of injury
1: I, mean, I think you if you cheated and read some articles on this prime but that's in, that's in fact <laughs> true because you know the the athletes who do single sport specialization are a higher risk of injury and the second thing that's interesting is that those that do multiple sports uh actually have better psychomotor development and I, i'm i'm blessed i'm an old guy and i Grew up in the 70s uh, high school, and we all did three sports. And the literature would say that not only am I with less risk for a overuse injury, but I also enhanced my um, psychomotor development. It's just like sort of crosstalk, different neural pathways. uh, And it helped me a lot. I'm still not there yet. I'm I'm so uncoordinated, Brian. If (laughs) you walk, I
0: can't chew gum. How about that? (laughs) And Dr. Kelly, you were an athlete too, right? Did you college athlete?
1: Uh, yeah I played uh, football and track in college and uh, it was division one and I learned an awful lot about uh, injuries because and speed and uh, how how um, <laughs> I was definitely outclassed by many people of much higher talent than me. you know Once you get that level it's like everything everybody's good everybody's fast and you had to show up every day and I learned about uh, you know grit because uh, you know every day it played hurt. Uh, but I also uh, got the empathy gene on Hyperdrive because I think every football engineer, you know, in the man I have sustained. So when an athlete comes in, I'm like, <laughs> I know what you're going through. I have an idea. <laughs> you know, so um, it was a real blessing for me. And, uh, you know, thank God I only came out with maybe three surgeries and I'm still walking. I still have all my own parts, no, no hip or no knee yet, yet I say. Uh, but it was a great character builder for me. And uh, the team I played for uh, didn't win a lot of games. And that was a, another challenge, just showing up every week and trying to win. Yeah,
0: and I'm kind of glad you brought up, you know, showing up every week. Uh, you know, today, athletes can't even really show up every day considering COVID-19. Do you think one of the silver linings with with the coronavirus, and there aren't many, is that some of these older athletes or athletes who are entering the years outside of their prime have some time to shut it down, essentially some extra rest? Uh, ultimately do you see this time as benefiting specific athletes coming oh, out of?
1: Oh, absolutely. Sure. You know, the, there's an old axiom. It's either to, it's easier to overtrain than undertrain. Mm-hmm. And when I was at Temple, I had a wonderful mentor, Ray Moyer, and he told me he took care of uh, some, uh, a lot of NFL athletes. And he said, Joe Kletko, I if you remember, he's a great athlete. the His best season was when he didn't practice. He had a midfoot injury. I think it was, and he would only show up for games. He would lift, eat sleep and show up to games and you know just maul people but that was his best season when he didn't practice i mean go think about that i remember in my i say infinitely uh, unforgettable college career um i you know by thursday i felt my legs were going (laughs) and and, you know always felt monday i felt good and all of a sudden i get beaten up again tuesday wednesday and thursday and even in, in your 20s you feel like uh overuse kicks in so there's no question that it's easier to overtrain than undertrain.
0: that's very interesting so i mean I, th- I think that's me personally interviewing you um obviously i did do some research and that was a question that i was very interested in um you're also the director at penn throwing clinic for the yeah. university of pennsylvania can you kind of touch upon that what that is
1: it's one of my passions is we see a lot of throwing athletes and i would say 90 5% plus of throwing-related injuries, whether it's labral, cuff, and Tommy John, are preventable. And we have a throwing lab where we get athletes to come in and we look at their, we call pitching mechanics, uh, look at their forces across their elbow and their shoulder. Sure. We can make some calculations and look at uh, what we call kinetic chain evaluation. And if we get 15, 16-year-olds in there early enough, I think it'd be very unusual for them to sustain a significant injury because the people that have Operate on like in their nineteen twenty-ish. Uh, most of the time, I see them. They have very, very significant biomechanical abnormalities. Whenever addressed, which puts strain on their rotator cuff, their labrum, and their ulnar collateral ligament. So, you know, throwing injuries in a particular subset of sports medicine universe are almost uniformly preventable.
0: Okay. And now that kind of expand on this because I was a former baseball player and, and a very
1: good one. I know, and this is for the audience. <laughs> oh, he was a very good one. Very good one.
0: Like, <laughs> thank, thank you. And uh, you know, it's not a natural motion. I, I, arguably, my career ended or you know, with the, with a the shoulder injury. Right? It's, it's yep. not a natu- It's not a natural motion. Can you kind of expand yeah. on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think the good Lord made our our shoulders engineered to throw uh, with a velocity of seven thousand meters per second. I mean, it just. Mm-hmm. Total supraphysiologic stresses on your shoulder, and when you do that day in day out, there's lots of literature, particularly baseball, on the single sport specialization. Did you know there's more Hall of Fame pitchers, Brian, from the northern climates versus southern? Do you really? Know why? Because they didn't, ha- they couldn't play all year. Yes, yes. You look at the right. Hall of Fame; most of them are from more northern climes. Um, so, baseball. Injuries related to showcases, which you did, uh, multiple sport teams, which I think you did, uh, no. you know, no rest. Um, and uh, now one thing you did not have was helicopter parent. Unfortunately, some of the parents went each of their kids to get the Cy Young Award. So they, ma- they make their kids do more and do travel teams and showcases, all this stuff, which is really uh, a labral rotator cuff ulnar ligament injury machine.
0: And now Tommy John surgery, you know, is it true that after the surgery they're a lot stronger or is that? No, no,
1: no, no, no. That's that's a myth promulgated by uh, uh, the late public. Uh, Most of the throwers, and I do that surgery, uh, get back to the first year with a little loss of uh, performance. And there's a recent article saying some people at the second year do have a little bit of uptick in performance, but by and large, uh, most of the athletes lose a little bit of velocity so people have seen that movie, The Rookie, and they go, oh, well, boy, if I get this, I will, I'll throw 100 miles an hour. <laughs> not, not. So um, I think one of the reasons people get back and throw stronger is just the relative rest that the injury recovery incurs on their shoulder. Because even though it's elbow surgery, one article recently showed that, again, a couple, handful of patients did throw better the second year. But I think it's because of just the long rehab and the relative rest and they got their kinetic chain. And everything else in order.
0: And are you involved at all with the therapy after the surgery? You have to write up a therapy, I know, or, or some sort yeah. of therapy, right? yes, yes,
1: uh, yeah. We 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 try to be hands on. Uh, I am really a blessed guy because I have wonderful therapists. Uh, but I see the patients, you know, usually every six weeks or so, eight weeks, and tweak things there. and there's Usually one or two things that fall out of kilter, and usually remind the therapist, hey, I think we should work on this more so than others, but you know, most of the therapists I'm surrounded with uh, know a lot more about the exercise than I ever will. And I'm really, really gifted to have them in my, uh, in my vocation.
0: Sure. You're focused on shoulder. Let me ask you something. that's kind of a question now that I'm thinking of, you know, you, you've done, you've done so many different surgeries. You've come across so many different athletes. Is there any particular sport maybe that you weren't interested in, but now that you're, you know, a surgeon and you've worked with different athletes that you are interested in or have more respect for?
1: Uh, I, you know, I grew up in the seventies and, um, uh, soccer wasn't really a big deal back then, but I have Mm -hmm. a lot of reverence for soccer because I realized that it's a very demanding sport. It's a contact sport in many respects. And, uh, lots of, uh, this concussions that I never imagined I would see in in soccer. I see a lot of ACL injuries. So I have a lot, I didn't know much about soccer again, growing up in the, you know, early '70s, six and uh, late '60s, but now that I've treated the soccer athletes, I have a lot of reverence for the support and appreciation of uh, how much of a context sport it really is.
0: A really cool. And you know, my last question is: You are a stand-up comedian. If we could kind of part ways, you know, if you could just tell a joke here or or send us off with a uh, with a quick routine, if you, if you don't mind.
1: Well, look, I uh, from Wilmington, Delaware. Most people say Delaware. We have three counties, two at high tide, and um, I'm from a rough neighborhood. In fact, my neighborhood was so tough. The kids, they celebrate their birthday six months in advance in case they didn't make it. (laughs) But my father owns a bar. It's been in the family since 1869. and We just redecorated it. We put all new drunks in, so it looks really nice. And it's kind of a dive, Brian. I walked in the other day, and I said to my brother, I said, Mike, where's the men's room? He said, you're in it. (laughs) Um, But... um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a blessed guy, and um, I uh, live in a dream. Um, I, I have a vocation to die for. And one of the things I tell patients, like, in terms of their shoulder, I'll say, you yeah, an unstable shoulder. Does your shoulder go out more than you do? That's a great question. Um, so anyway, um, I could go on and on, Brian. I, I have a different uh, pocket of routines for different occasions. But um, I did get my license back. And with the COVID thing, times have been tough. Uh, the, other, uh, the other day, I had to touch up an x ray to convince a patient that they needed surgery. <laughs> and with the managed I'm, I'm, care. I am laughing. I am laughing. You're just kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, so, with the managed care thing, it's really tough to do the right thing for the patients. I went to a HMO luncheon the other day and they served split fee soup. I'll tell your dad that one split fee soup. Um, so, no, that, that's a better part. I'm getting a little hungry and it's happy hour now. So, yeah. I'm happy to help the cause here.
0: We'll like wrap it
1: fans, up. I got my license back. Drug test is pending, but I got my license back. <laughs>
0: well, it's you know, really good to hear. And it's always good catching up with you, uh, Uncle Kelly. So,
1: Hey, Brian, we'll call your dad. And Tom, you are a chip off the old block. Now, if you're balancing your checkbook in your interview, then I know your dad's your dad's son.
0: One oh, time he interviewed
1: been. me and he was balancing his checkbook while interviewing me. That is I'm not. multi-testing. I'm,
0: I'm not quite there yet. But, uh, you know. Each podcast, I think we're doing a great job here. Our listeners are surely enjoying it, and they'll really enjoy this episode. So once again, Dr. John Kelly, thank you so much for your time. And it's really such a privilege to be able to speak to such an incredible surgeon and person like Dr. Kelly. Dr. John Kelly is one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in this country and a great family friend. It's people like Dr. Kelly who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape the sports landscape but even more importantly, operate on and instill wisdom that can carry these athletes and individuals to new heights. If you enjoyed today's episode of the SBR podcast, please follow me on Twitter at SBR underscore podcast. I'm also available on Instagram at the same handle, SBR underscore podcast. And if you feel the need to provide any further feedback, please visit www.sportsbusinessreview.com the official home of the SBR podcast. Once again, my name is Brian McDonough, and have a great week, everyone.